If you were with us last week, you uh, were, were with us when we dove deep into the, the book of Jude. We made it uh, so deep, we made it all the way down to verse 3. That's how deep we got last week. Uh, we're going to be back there again. If you want to uh, turn to page 988, if you grabbed one of our guest Bibles. And by the way, we replenished those, that supply uh, this week. So there's a, a whole bunch of brand new Bibles that have never been used before. So if you or someone you know uh, would like uh, a Bible in the New Living Translation, uh, they're, they're there for you. So feel free to take one, keep one, uh, or give one. That's, that's, uh, that's why they're there. So please take advantage of that. If you grabbed one of those, page 988. And uh, we were there last week, and we saw that right from the introduction of this uh, very small letter in the New Testament, uh, we saw right away what Jude is writing this letter for. What, what is his purpose in writing this? It's, it's found there in verse 3. I'm going to go and read that. This is from last week. He says, Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. And the question that I have for you already from last week is, when he says, I, I'm urging you, who's the you? Well, the answer, of course, is, just a couple of verses back, at the end of verse 1, he tells us who the you is. He says, I'm writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. He's writing to us. He's writing to all the church. It is the work and the responsibility and the burden of all the church to, as he says, defend the faith. It's not the work of the pastor. It's not the work of the evangelist. It is not the work of the apologist or the scholar. It is the work of us all. Now this morning, I want to dive even deeper. We're going to go a whole half verse further into the letter <laughs> to answer a question. And the question is, well, why? Why, Jude, did you intend to write this beautiful letter to talk about the, the gospel, the good news, the salvation we all share, but then decided to write something else entirely. What is the, the occasion for this? What is the reason for this urgency with which you are exhorting the church to defend the faith? Well, I'm going to tell you something right now. The problem that Jude's churches are facing, it looks nothing like what you and I typically deem problems in the church. What are some of the typical problems that, that we think are our problems when we, we look at church life or as you look at other churches around in the sort of a typical American church context. Well, it wasn't a problem of a shortage of money, right? That's usually where, where churches get all bent out of shape and flustered and worried, right? When, when there's not a, as much coming in as there used to be and, and living sort of still in a, a post-COVID world, that still is, of course, a concern. There's, if you look at anybody's attendance and giving charts, you'll see that, that they're not the same as they were three years ago. But that's not why Jude is writing. He's not writing because there's a shortage of money or because there's lackluster attendance or participation in, in the church or that their buildings are falling into disrepair or that they need to, to build a new playground. Now listen, I'm not against building a new playground, all right? But what we deem a problem is not what Jude is concerned about. He's concerned about something entirely different. And, and listen, all of those things matter. All of those, those things are important. And it's possible that even the churches that Jude is writing to struggled with certain kinds of things along those lines. Of course, that's possible. But it's not what Jude is writing about. It's not what occupies his attention. It's not what prompts the urgency with which he writes this letter that he didn't intend to write when he started out. No, he's concerned about something far more important. So let's look again here in the text. I'm going to sort of look at verse 3. I just read it a second ago. I'm going to read it again to set up the first half of verse, of verse 4. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his people. Verse 4, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches. 
ungodly people have infiltrated the church. Now I want to take a closer look at that to try to get a clearer picture of who he's talking about and what it means. He doesn't give any names, but I think it's probably safe to assume that everyone that he was writing to knew exactly who he was talking about. They were, first of all, almost certainly people in positions of leadership. If you were to go with me down to verse 12, look what he says there in verse 12. He says, when these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, by the way, we are, we're going to have such a meal here momentarily as we partake in the Lord's Supper together. He says, when these people eat with you in your fellowship doing that, they're like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. But here's where I want you to, to catch what he says, the language he uses. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves, like clouds billowing over the land without giving any rain. They're like trees in autumn that are doubly dead for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They are like shameless shepherds. That word is not an accident. In fact, in the, the verses that continue, if we were to read through the sort of the, the heart of this one chapter long letter, you would see that these people were prophesied um, from of old. Go back through the Old Testament and look at the things that are said there about the false shepherds of Israel and, and the problem that presented the people of God and the curse that lay upon them. He'll go on to talk about how these people were foretold by the apostles. Read the letters of the New Testament and you'll see exactly what he's talking about. The apostles themselves warned the church that this type of thing would happen, that false shepherds would come into the church and begin leading God's people astray. These people in positions of leadership and influence were secondly ungodly. Now, if you're trying to get some reference of what he means by ungodly, well, you can just flip over to Second um, Peter chapter 2. And we do that because so much of Jude is influenced by and, and has taken cues from Second Peter. It's not a carbon copy. We talked about that, about that last week. You had people in throughout church history, such as Martin Luther, who thought Jude wasn't really worth anything because it was just a carbon copy of 2 Peter. And that has been demonstrated not to be the case. So I'm not saying that, but we can turn to 2 Peter for some reference. So if you were to flip back a few pages, and you don't have to if you don't want to, it's going to be on the screen. But if we were to go back to 2 Peter chapter 2 and look at verses 5 and 6, we would see the exact same language. And look what Peter has to say there. Verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah, here it is, when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, verse six, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. Why? He made them as an example of what will happen to ungodly people. And as if there was any confusion about the people in his day to whom he was referring, Peter will go on in verses 10 and following to refer to the false teachers, the false shepherds within the people of God. He likens them to the, the wicked people of the world in Noah's day. We're talking Genesis chapter 6. We're going all the way back to almost the very beginning when the world had become so filled with violence and so full of corruption and so depraved that God was essentially wiping the slate and starting all over again with a family. Because as it says in Genesis chapter 6, that the earth was filled with violence and everyone was corrupt, Noah was the only righteous man. Imagine that. In an entire world full of people. We don't know how full the planet was of people in those days. Probably not the seven, eight billion people that we, we have in the world today for sure. But still, every person in the world was so wicked, so violent, so corrupt, so rebellious against his creator that God wiped the slate clean and started out with the only blameless person left alive. Peter says, and Judah says, the people that are in your pulpits are like that. They're like the people from Genesis chapter 19 who populated the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah 
Have you ever read Genesis 19? Together, this reverence to the people of Noah's day and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they, these groups are the exhibit A. They are the, the very definition, the illustration, the epitome of fallen, depraved, rebellious humanity. And Peter and Jude point to them and say, that's what these people who have slithered into your midst and taken up positions of, of authority and leadership and influence, they are just like them. They're wicked. They're twisted. They are not who they claim to be. Listen, when, when Jude says, defend the faith, I urge you to defend the faith because ungodly people have wormed their way into the church. He's not saying there are unbelievers who have come and joined your fellowship. Listen, the church has never been opposed to welcoming outsiders, if you want to use that kind of terminology. In fact, that's what we exist for. We're ex we exist to go out into the world and reach the lost and bring them in. And there may be people sitting here this morning uh, among this beautiful crowd of faces that I get to look at. There may be some of you in here that don't consider yourself a believer. And I want you to hear me when I say, this is not talking about you. This is not the Bible. This is not this pastor or this church saying that you are in any way unwelcome here. And that we view you like worms who kind of slither and crawl and sneak your way in. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about people who have a scheme. People who have an agenda. And their agenda is to, is to do whatever they can in the shadows. To fly beneath the radar. We're not talking, you know, 60,000 feet above continental America for everyone in Montana and beyond to see. We're talking stealth technology. Sliding in. Saying whatever, not what's true but what needs to be said to gain a position, to gain advantage, to get where they want to be. He's not talking about the unbeliever. No, they've, this is, this is the translation in the NLT. I, I think it, it hits the nail right on the head. They have wormed their way into your churches and into your pulpits. They were not persecutors of the faith from out there. No, they were perverters of the faith from within here. Listen, you and I, when we talk about the troubles facing the church, we generally include in our list of troubles. In fact, yesterday, we had a day-long uh, board of stewards retreat. We sat right there in Friendship Sea from nine to five, and we, we hashed out, you know, the important things that are that, are, that have been on the mind and heart of this church for years, things that are pressing today, and what the future holds for tomorrow. And one of those, and it has to be something that we keep our eye on, because the, the very realistic of, of, of real persecution facing the church is a clear and present danger. It's something we have, we can't just stick our heads in the sand and pretend it's not, it's not coming, or it's not already here. But listen, all throughout church history, persecution I mean, genuine persecution against the church has always had the effect of doing what? It strengthens the church. Now, we don't like that any more than people making New Year's resolutions like the fact that if you want to get trim and fit and lean, you got to go run and lift weights and do the hard stuff. But the truth is, God has always permitted persecution because he uses it to strengthen and solidify and sharpen and hone his people. Persecution always has the effect of strengthening the church, but perversion always weakens it. And that's why when you are in reading through the book of Acts and you come to chapter 5 and you read the story about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, we see this, this story and it makes us bristle. I can't believe that happened. I can't believe God would do that. And, and we need to hear from the scriptures, what it's saying about how seriously God takes the internal integrity of his church, especially as it pertains to those in charge. God means business about it. This is not an issue of persecution 
from without. This is a problem of perversion from within. These people, they were not public separatists. You know, showing up the church meeting, very clearly opposed to the direction the pastor is leading the church and inciting a, a revolution and, and gathering a following so they can split the church and go do something else. That's not who these people were. No, these are people engaged in an unholy subterfuge to seize control of the church from within, to twist it, to reshape it, to use it for their own purposes. They were therefore crafty and persistent and patient and unfortunately persuasive. Their admission into the fellowship, their their Admission into leadership was secretly gained, which is the exact same thing Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, where the so-called believers were smuggled in. They were smuggled in, contraband, so they could preach a false gospel from the inside out. It's shocking to me that this has happened. Now, you and I aren't shocked to hear that that, by the way, this is happening today. In case you missed the reason I'm preaching the sermon, this kind of thing is happening all around you today. And you're, and you're probably sitting there thinking, yes, I know that, Pastor Sean, and no, I'm not surprised. But what is surprising to me is that this was happening in the first century. I mean, this is the, the first generation of Christians, the, the beginning of the Christian church, and they're already dealing with this problem, which tells us what? It is always a potential danger. From the beginning of the church until the day Jesus comes back, it is a clear and present danger to the church in every single age. Which is why I, for one, am really grateful that our particular church and denomination has certain safeguards in place to prevent this type of thing from happening here. And I want to talk for a couple minutes about what some of those are. The, the first is this little black book. This is the 2002 Discipline of the Evangelical Methodist Church. Did you know such a thing existed? Well, if you've gone through the membership class with me, you know that this, this exists, and you even have an electronic copy in your email or smartphone or whatever, because I make sure everyone who goes to the membership class has access to the discipline of the EMC. What is the discipline? This is what we believe, how we're structured, how we operate. Not this church, our entire denomination. And you can be confident that no matter what EMC church you attend in the United States or around the world believes the exact same things. Why? Because it's in the discipline. This is the, the safeguard, the, the boundary lines for our doctrines and beliefs. And, and no church and no pastor and no bishop and no district has the unilateral authority to change anything in here. So you, you can't have this church decides they don't like that part about, oh, we don't like the part about virgin birth, so we're going to tweak that. No, if you do that, then you, you will be disciplined, and there will be accountability for that. You can't do that and call yourself an EMC church because it's in the discipline. We are connectional. And there's lots of values to being connectional. I've heard questions in the past from from great godly people, and they're, they're fair questions, but I hear questions sometimes like, why do we pay conference support? If you've ever looked at our budget, you'll see there's two really big ticket items at the very bottom of it. There's our, our missions giving, which Craig shared a little bit about, supporting all these missionaries and missions organizations, both uh, domestic and abroad, around the world, touching all these nations, and that money comes from our budget, as well as your faith promise giving, which we'll talk about, we talk about every year at the missions uh, conference in October. But there's also beneath that conference support. Ooh, what is conference support? You mean to tell me we're giving tens of thousands of dollars every year to the denomination? Why? What do we get out of that? And that's a, that is a fair question, but let me tell you some of the things you get out of it. You get, for starters, this. And maybe sitting in a, in a, you know, in the congregation Sunday by Sunday, you don't feel the importance of that. But I tell you, as someone leading a congregation Sunday by Sunday, I see it as very important. And, and I'm actually on the committee that is responsible for this. I'm the chair of that committee for our entire denomination, in case you didn't know that. That's how serious I take it. You get a discipline that protects 
the doctrines of our denomination. It protects our polity, how we are structured, how we are governed, how we operate, how we deal with, with pastors or churches that, that don't abide by the discipline. There's, there's rules and procedures for how to deal with that. You get a discipline. You also get legal protection, by the way. If I were to preach something or hold to some sort of standard from this pulpit or in the ministry of this church that someone outside the church did not like and they wanted to um, sue me or sue the church for that, they, they can't. Why? Because I'm bound by this. So who do they sue? They sue the denomination. Who provides your legal protection? But do you know what else you get from paying your conference support in a roundabout way? And maybe you won't like this. <laughs> But in a way, you get me. <laughs> Don't clap. No, no, stop it. It's not why I said that. <laughs> I am licensed and credentialed and ordained, not by you, but by the conference. And therefore, I am subject to the oversight of our bishops and the conference. So if I show up here one day and I start preaching something you don't like, or something that doesn't align with our, our doctrines and our distinctives, or something that doesn't align with the scriptures, there is a, a process of accountability to keep me in check. There's accountability built in to your connectionalism. Oh, and by the way, you're also congregational. Those are the two, again, I'm kind of plugging membership class in a way. Um, you will learn about what it means that we're connectional and congregational, which also means if you, as a local church, want to get rid of me, you can get rid of me tomorrow. Yeah, Linda says you're out. <laughs> well, we know where Linda stands on that topic. <laughs> Safeguards. In a day like ours, listen, in a day like today, when I feel like every time I pull up my Twitter feed, there's some breaking news about some church that has gone off the deep end. Some pastor, some scandal, some something. In a day like today, I... I hope you can at least appreciate, if not come to cherish, our connectionalism. I think it's worth its weight in gold. Another safeguard, since we're kind of talking about it, is church membership, which is something we hold in very high esteem here. We try to. If you want to vote in this church, if you want to teach in this church or lead in any capacity, if you want to serve on a board or a committee, you have to be a member in good standing. Not just, to, not just have your name written in the book. There are discipline. The discipline determines what membership is and what it means to be a member in good standing. And if you want to do any of those things, there's certain expectations upon you as a member. Therefore, membership carries a degree of accountability. Part of the membership class as I teach it um, in the very, I think it's the first class, um, I will say to the class something like this when we're kind of defining what membership is. I will say, when a person becomes a member of the church, he or she submits themselves to the care and the authority of the biblically qualified elders that God has placed in that assembly. So what does that mean? Well, it means there's a beautiful balance in this church. It means that on one hand, you receive care. You're the recipient of pastoral care. Okay, so if you end up in the hospital today with some major thing, a pastor is going to come and pray for you. A pastor is going to, to preach from this pulpit, except for the Sundays where I'm not here and I have someone fill in. Sometimes it's a pastor, sometimes it's a pastor in training. But a, a qualified person will minister to you and care for you and provide for your needs. That's, that's this direction. But in this direction, you also submit to, at some level to the, the biblical authority of the leadership. And there's a beautiful balance in that. It's not one way, either direction. I serve you, you don't serve me. But at some level, you, you, there's a, a submission to the, the direction and the pastoral shepherding care that is provided by the leadership. We are nothing more than under-shepherds of the good shepherd who tend his flock, not our flock. We're not, you've heard me rail on this before, we're not, 
I don't view the pastor as the tyrant king who rules, you know, with an iron fist. No, Jesus gave us the model of leadership in the New Testament. It's the, it's, it's the model of the servant who takes, who takes the towel and washes the feet. Listen, I will submit to that type of leader any day, personally. The one who's not in it for himself. Who's not here to lord anything over me, but to serve and do what is best for my heart. And here's the thing. If you, we know about what happens if I go rogue, but if you go rogue, meaning you're embracing and promoting some doctrine that doesn't agree with the scriptures or with our discipline, or if you abandon your church in some wanton fashion, if you are living in some sort of deep, persistent sin, if you are bringing reproach to the name of Christ and to his church, if you want to go rogue, listen, that's your choice. But it comes at the cost of your good standing and membership. Because you see, at every level of our church in our denomination's life, some form of accountability exists for everybody, whether it's members or leaders. Safeguards. But how does, how does this happen? In the first century or any century, how does a church built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ ever permit or allow this type of thing to happen? How are the godless people able to worm their way in all the way up to the platform in front of you? How does it happen? I'll tell you when it happens. It happens whenever a church takes its eyes off the supremacy of the truth of God's word. That's when it happens. When you compromise the truth of God's word, when you, when you make it subservient to anything, that's what you're going to get. Remember Jude, way back in verse 3, <laughs> from where we are in our deep dive this morning. <laughs> what is he saying? You, you need, all of you need to defend the faith. It's almost as if to say, because you haven't been. You have made concessions. You have compromised. You've gone soft. You've, you've allowed yourself to be taken in by the siren calls of some other adulterous gospel. And as a result, there are wolves within the sheepfold. And listen, they're going to stop at nothing. They will stop at nothing to advance their own agenda in the pursuit of power and prestige. They will never stop. Now, <clears throat> This next part of the sermon is very personal to me, so if I get all emotional up here, I hope you'll, get, you'll cut me some slack. Last week, I made a confession to you. Do you remember what it was? You thought it was going to be some like really big, dramatic, like earth-shattering thing, and it was basically just that I have uh, an interest, not an obsession, an interest in the show Gold Rush. <laughs> Did anybody go watch Gold Rush as a result of that last week? I'm just curious. Oh, we have one. We have two people that are willing to at least admit it. Okay, fair enough. Um, I have another confession this week, but it is a little more serious than the one from last week. And I hope you hear me and you understand where my heart is when I share this. <clears throat> and here it is. I do not have a 10-year plan. I don't have a 10-year plan. And there was a time in my life, and I'm still tempted to even now, where I felt guilty about that. Like there was something wrong with me because I didn't have some sort of like goal and a path. And it's something that, that's hammered into our kids from, you know, ninth, tenth grade in high school, right? You have to know which college you're going to. You have to know where you want to go to work. You have to have a plan. What are you doing now to fulfill your plan? What's your goal? 
You want to you be something, you want to become something. Where are you going? How are you going to get there? And listen, I'm not opposed to making plans. I'm not saying that if you've ever done that, that you've, there's something unspiritual about you or something wrong with your life. But that's not what I'm saying. It's just, I don't have one. And I never have. I'll never forget a conversation I had with Rachel Duncan. Many of you know Rachel. Um, some of you don't, and that's okay. She was Jessica before Jessica. She was the secretary. After Barbara, she was the bridge from Barbara to Jessica. That is, by the way, not an easy job. Because Barbara was there from the dawn of time. And, and Barbara, remarkable I mean, one of the dearest human beings that any of us have ever known. But Barbara had Barbara's way of doing, doing things. And ain't nobody was going to change Barbara. So it took Barbara retiring for us to update, <laughs> modernize a lot of how the church office worked. And that was Ra Rachel did that. So thank you, Rachel. But one day I was having a conversation with Rachel and she asked me the question, so, and this, she was brand new to the office, like we're talking first month. She says, so um, where do you see her? And I was the associate pastor at the time. So Pastor Bill was here, I was the associate pastor and she was the new secretary. And she asked me, so where do you see yourself in five years? And I hate that question because it, I feel like my answer is, it's embarrassing. It's an embarrassing question. Because it either sounds disingenuous, like I'm just trying to be spiritual, or it just sounds cliche, it doesn't sound honest, or it sounds like I'm a doofus. And maybe, I know at least one of those is probably true. But my answer is, whatever Jesus wants me to do. And I, I really mean that. Um, as much as I kind of hate to say it because of all of those reasons I just said. And by the way, <laughs> just a little aside, um, she asked me that, like a day after Pastor Bill told me in private that he was leaving. So I literally meant, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what's happening here. I don't know where I'm going to be in five years. I really don't. But that's always my answer. And it's not that I'm not a driven person or I'm not an ambitious person or I don't have plans or, or, I'm say, or that I'm not a planner. I do plan. You have to plan. But when it comes to where, I'm, where I or my family is going, our commitment is to Jesus and his will. Period. Not one time since I gave my heart to Jesus, and I can say that with absolute confidence, I can stare you in the face and say it because it's absolutely true. Not once in my entire life as a Christian, since I consecrated my life to the Lord, have I ever made a single life decision with upward mobility in mind? Not one time. In fact, it's not even a category of consideration. And I know that goes against everything the world tells you and teaches you to do. But it's not even, it's not in the pie chart of what factors into a decision, a life decision you know, you have these different reasons, the different slices of the pie. I promise you, upward mobility, positioning myself for a, a, a promotion or the next level up is not even a crumb. From day one, the only thing that I or my wife in our marriage have ever wanted was Jesus. Jesus. The night that I consecrated my heart to Jesus was at a camp meeting in Northeast Ohio called Hollow Rock. The longest continuously running holiness camp meeting in America, by the way. Over 100 years, every year. At least then. I don't know what COVID did to it. This was 20 years ago. 21 years ago. So 21 years ago, anyway, that was the case. Hollow Rock camp meeting in um, Northeast Ohio in 2002. I'll never forget that night. It changed my life forever. And by the way, the guy that preached that sermon um, was one of the speakers at General Conference, Jim Harriman, back in July. And it's the first time I'd seen him since that night. And I got to go to him and tell him, thank you. Thank you for, for preaching that sermon from Philippians chapter two. 
Because that was the night that I didn't just have Jesus as my Savior. That was the night he became my Lord. And as we ended that service, I sang the words to a song. Maybe you'll find this cheesy, (laughs) but it's my testimony. I sang the words to the song. You may know it. I'm not going to make you sing it, and I'm definitely not going to sing it. But I'm going to read you the lyrics. The name of the song is, I'll Go Where You Want Me To Go. Bear with me. It's going to be on the screen. These are the words that I sang and meant from my heart. It may not be on the mountain height or over the stormy sea. It may not be at the battle's front. My Lord will have need of me. But if by a still small voice he calls to paths that I do not know, I'll answer, dear Lord, with my hand in thine. I'll go where you want me to go. Perhaps today there are loving words which Jesus would have me speak. There may be now in the paths of sin some wanderer whom I should seek. O Savior, if thou wilt be my guide, though dark and rugged the way, my voice shall echo the message sweet. I'll say what you want me to say. There's surely somewhere a lowly place in earth's harvest field so wide where I may labor through life's short day for Jesus the crucified. So trusting my all to thy tender care and knowing thou lovest me, I'll do thy will with a heart sincere. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, or mountain or plain or sea. I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. And that was my prayer. My my life was changed forever. Now look, (laughs) I'm not telling you these things because I want in any way there to be any attention on me. I've been extremely, You have no idea how I've agonized this week over saying these things. And those of you who are here regularly or have listened to my preaching for the last half a decade know that I I never make the message about myself. It's, it's, It's a repugnant thing to do, and that's not my intention in sharing this. I have shaken physically thinking about talking about these things because I don't want to come across as being defensive or propping myself up or promoting myself or anything. Please hear my heart. I share these things because I want it on the public record in, in, for all the world. We're live streaming to the ends of the earth. I want everyone to know right here and right now on public display, on public record, that my intention and my family's intention is to only ever follow Jesus as he leads. There's no agenda. There's no plan. There's no long game. And if that means that Jesus calls us to stay here as long as you will have us, then we'll stay here forever. But it also means if he tells us tomorrow, as hard hard as it would break my heart to go, then we go. Because no matter how much I love you or my wife loves you, we love Jesus more. And you have the permission. No, church, you have the imperative to evaluate my life. Every word, every decision, every action, you have the imperative to evaluate that against this claim. Because I'm telling you my intention. Now you have to, you have to watch me prove it. And I wonder if that's what was missing in the churches here. I wonder if that's what allowed schemers to slide into positions of power. The failure of the church to examine and verify the congruence of their leader's words, yes, to the truths of Scripture. That's absolutely a problem. They are not verifying the truth of their teachings to the truth of God's word, and that is priority number one. But I wonder if also they didn't verify and examine the congruence of their words to their actions. They got there because they, they twisted everything. And they told you out of this side of their mouth, one thing, and then they lived another way with their life. And I'm telling you, don't let me get away with that for a second. Or anybody that you are sitting beneath the authority of or the influence of. 
from your Sunday school teachers to your life group facilitator to the pastor on the, in the pulpit or on the radio or anywhere else in your life, any, the, the people who write their books, whoever it is that you are placing yourself freely beneath their influence and authority, you better compare their words to the scriptures and their words to the fruit of their lives. Otherwise, what? You end up with this problem right here. I think one of the things, oh gosh, I didn't make it through this part in any of my preparation without uh, this happening. I thought I could do it, but. I think one of the things, I think the thing that I love most about my predecessor, those of you who knew Pastor Bill, he was my um, seminary theology professor. He was my pastor here, my co-laborer for the gospel. He was a mentor and he's a friend. And the thing I love most about that man is that the closer you get to him, the more deeply you come to know his heart, <clears throat> the more he, you see how much he resembles Jesus. And those of you who know Pastor Bill know what I'm talking about. That man lives out everything he preaches. And he's been preaching a lot for a long time. <laughs> he's got a weekly um, podcast where he's been preaching called The Hour of Holiness. My gosh, for 30 years or something crazy. Every week. Preaching holiness. In the 20 plus years I've known him, he's never said one word in public or in private. And by the way, I know him better than every person in here, I promise. And I can tell, I can tell you this. And I'm, by the way, he, he has no idea. He would die. If he, <laughs> please don't go tell him that I'm talking about him this morning. <laughs> he would be so mad at me. <clears throat> but I never heard him say one word in public or in private about his PhD. Or the books that he's written. Or his ministry accomplishments or his global renown. He's known around the world for, his, for what he's accomplished. If, if you just met the guy passing through the grocery store or on a Sunday morning, you'd never know any of that about him. He's not perfect, but oh, his heart is pure. There's no ego, self-focus. There's no scheming. And let me tell you something. If you've ever met a person like that, that person will leave a mark on your life. But you know what? So will the ones like Judah's talking about. But a different kind of mark altogether. One of them is going to draw you nearer to Jesus, and the other is going to pull you away. And I wonder if maybe that's the greatest test of a Christian leader. What is the fruit of their leadership? What is the fruit of their influence? We're going to dive more deeply next week into the, the second half of verse 4. And I know it's, it's kind of silly that in a, a four-week sermon series, three of the, of the four sermons don't get us past verse 4. It is what it is. But we're going to get into the second half of verse 4 next week, and we're going to look at, you know, what is it that these false teachers were actually teaching? But for the sake of this morning, I want you to ask yourself this. As you evaluate whoever you have placed yourself beneath in terms of their teaching or their biblical you know, church ministry authority, as you evaluate from me to Jeff to Richard to whoever your pastor is, if you're visiting from another church, whoever you are reading, whoever you're listening to, as you evaluate their impact on your life, what, what is the fruit? What is the fruit? Are you drawn closer to Jesus? And I mean the Jesus of the scriptures. Not their, their version of Jesus. There's lots of 
different versions of Jesus floating around out there. I'm talking about the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus that is the living, resurrected, reigning Christ. Are you drawn closer to him? Relationally, emotionally, spiritually, transformationally? Do you love Jesus more? Are you more surrendered to his truth, more surrendered to his will? Are you growing ever more day after day? There's ups and downs to our our growth charts, of course. But in the grand scheme of things, are you growing day after day more and more into the likeness of the Son of God? Don't ask if a preacher or a teacher, whether here or online or on TV, don't, don't ask, do they preach nice messages? I think the greatest insult you can pay me, though I know your hearts, you don't mean it, is to come and say, that was a nice sermon. I don't care if it was a nice sermon. I care if it changed your life. If you heard from the voice of God, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you between the words, between the lines? How is it drawing you closer to him? How are you becoming more like him? Don't ask if a message is nice, if it makes you feel good. Ask if the result of that person's influence upon your life is that yours is an increasingly gospel-centered, gospel-shaped life if you are becoming more holy as God, has, as God is holy. Because that's what matters. It doesn't matter if they're popular. It doesn't matter if they're smart or witty or funny or successful or even good-looking. What matters is to draw you closer to Jesus. That's what matters. In Galatians chapter one, which we heard Carly read so perfectly this morning, Paul, wasn't it funny by the way, or ironic, I don't know, to hear a child pronounce a curse? (laughs) That's what it was. God's curse upon anyone who preaches another gospel. That's what Paul's sharing in Galatians chapter one. And the question is why? Why? Well, Paul tells us in verses six and seven of that chapter, you can go there another time. I'm not gonna read it. It's not gonna be on the screen. But Paul says that basically this, by allowing yourself to be fooled by those who twist the essential truths of Christ and then following after a different way than the way you would come to know, that is to turn away from God himself. If you listen to and buy into and follow after any other gospel than the one that has been entrusted to the church, you are effectively turning from God. In other words, your salvation is at stake. That's why it matters. That's why God's curse lies upon the false teacher. Because they are actively leading people to damnation. Only belief in the Christ of the scriptures, only perseverance in the faith, the very truth of the good news of God, that alone has the power to save. So take a lesson from Jude this morning, church. And do not give your mind or your heart over to anyone who would cause you to deviate from the truth of his word by even one degree greatest threat to the church then and the greatest threat to the church today is not persecution of the faith from without. It is perversion of the faith from within. Lord, I thank you for the the strength to share things that are very personal and even private even more importantly, things that are urgent. I feel like every time I I look around, I see another so-called expert trying to tell me that the things that the Bible say are not true or, or my understanding is wrong. Things that the church has believed for 2,000 years suddenly aren't true anymore. And they're not voices from 
the unbelieving, well, the self-proclaimed unbelieving masses. No, these are people standing in places like where I'm standing right now. And they have whole crowds of people just swallowing, gulping down their, their lies. And for those who have eyes to see, those who are surrendered truly to the truth of your word and are, are serious about holding people accountable, all oh, their, their fruits are on full display. Lord, give this church eyes to see. The great tradition that's now 75 years in counting of faithful proclaimers of the truth of your word donning this pulpit. Lord, may that continue to be so for the next 75 years. And it doesn't happen automatically, it happens when people are defenders of the faith. It happens when people hold the words of their leaders to account to the truth of the scripture and, and, and to the congruence of their lives, the fruit of their lives. Lord, I, I pray that this church would hold me so accountable that I can't deviate or go rogue even in, in a thought. Thank you for the, the safeguards that are in place. Thank you that we are connectional. Oh, but thank you that we're congregational, that the members of this church are, are, the, are the gatekeepers. They have the final word. And thank you that the, the gatekeepers of this church, oh, they love you. And they're, they're more than eager to allow someone as broken and imperfect as me to provide under-shepherding care. Thank you for the beautiful relationship. And I, I hope and I pray that it continues until I die or until you come back. But Lord, give us all the, the conviction that, it, that if, you, if you change that plan tomorrow, that we will celebrate and worship you because we know that you are good. And we are so yielded to your will that we will go where you call us to go. And we will say what you want us to say. And we will be what you call us to be. And may it be so, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.